I'm Father Mitch Paquan. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition during this Easter week. So I want to wish you all Christ is risen. Indeed, He is risen. Masiyakam hakan kam. In Christos Anesti, Alithos Anesti. These are the various ways that Christians greet one another during the week of Easter. And we do well. A lot of times, you know, people don't like the word Easter. It's just the name of a month from the old English. And it's just, you know, so it's, we use that to remember that it was the month of Easter and the month of, uh, became the month of the resurrection. But what we celebrate in the Feast of Easter is this rising of Christ. And so we celebrate that with great joy. Now, we are studying the early part of the Lord's uh, mission, and we would love to have you join us, be part of the show. You can add your questions and comments during the live program, which is on Tuesday from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern time. So adapt your own time zone. And you can call in in the live show, which is 1-800-221-9460. That's for North America only. 1-800-221-9460. If you are not in North America, you can still call, but the number is country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. You can also send questions by email by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now we'll talk about how the people of Nazareth reacted to Jesus' actions and what he said to get angry. And we'll also start to take a look at the wedding feast of Cana and the importance of marriage and Jesus as the bridegroom of the church. Now, if you are following along with this, you can use the book. That's the basis for these programs. It's called Praying the Gospels. Jesus launches his public ministry. And that's available at EWTNRC.com where it is item 52687. 52687. All right, so we are just about to finish chapter three of that book. And we do so with meditation number five, where Jesus explains his sermon, his actions, and his actions elsewhere, and how the people react. We're only going to deal with a few verses, Luke 4, verses 25 to 30. It begins, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when all the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, when there came a great famine over all the land. And Elijah went to none of them but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. 
to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them was cleansed, only uh, Naaman the Syrian. So, now this is something that our Lord explains. Uh, remember, he had said, you know, you probably are thinking in your hearts, why doesn't he do miracles here? But I have to have faith. You have to have faith. So our Lord illustrates his whole proverb that a prophet uh, is unwelcome in his own country. He illustrates that with these examples of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah didn't go to an Israelite widow, but to a Phoenician woman. And Elisha didn't go to an Israelite leper, but he healed Naaman. Now, it was an Israelite little girl who had faith that God could heal her master, Naaman the Syrian, and he believed her word, and he went to Israel, and then was told to bathe in the Jordan seven times, and he would be healed of his leprosy. But for the rest of, uh, of the issue, the people of Israel had rejected both Elijah and Elisha. In fact, they tried to kill Elijah, and he had to run for his life. And Elisha had to live on the fringes, especially along the Jordan Valley. He, didn't, he wasn't welcome there. And our Lord is comparing himself to Elijah and Elisha. And it's very important because both of them were prophets who did miracles. They did, they were prophets who did miracles. In fact, each of them was called a man of God. That phrase, man of God, doesn't mean someone pious in the Old Testament. It means a prophet who does miracles. And there are only a few. Uh, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, one other prophet who's not named because he later on became uh, disobedient to God. But when the congregation hears Jesus' words and Jesus' criticism, and he's pointing out their lack of faith. They said in verse 28 to 30, when they, the people in the synagogue, heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Now, this is something that got them very upset. And they weren't quite as bad as the ancient Israelites. The ancient Israelites at the time of Elijah and Elisha were worshiping Baal. In fact, if you go to the ruins of the city of ancient Samaria, you can still see the ruins of a temple to Baal uh, that, that's there. And... You know, when they see that they're compared to their ancestors in ancient Israel, they're furious. 
They don't like being criticized and they want to kill our Lord. But it's something to go back to the very beginning. Remember how the verse our Lord read from Isaiah 61 verse 1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me. The power of the Holy Spirit is still upon him. He didn't get a bunch of disciples. He just didn't have disciples yet. He didn't start a gang fight or anything like that. He simply walked away. He didn't run. He didn't fight. He just simply walked in the middle of them and walked away from the situation where they wanted to kill him. That that power of the Holy Spirit was stronger than their anger. And that's a very important point. Now, think about the ways in which this looks backward in the gospel to Luke chapter 2, verse 34. When Simeon, holding the baby Jesus, says to his mother, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. This is the first time we see an example of Jesus preaching, and we see that some people fall in anger with a desire to kill him, and others have faith and rise, because he's able to do a little bit of healing there. But it's also something that looks forward to the rest of Jesus' ministry in the gospel. Because we see throughout the gospel that the prophecy of Simeon is fulfilled again and again. Some people don't have faith and they fall. Others have faith and they rise. They get healed. They follow Christ. They change their lives. They change their morals. This is very, very important. And something that we ought to consider ourselves is the ways in which our society today very much is trying to throw Jesus off the cliff. There are people who rise up in anger against him and do everything they can to get rid of him and remove him from our midst. Look at the 1962 Supreme Court decision. In fact, it goes back earlier to 1947 when Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black introduce the principle of there's a wall of separation between church and state. He didn't get that from the Constitution, and the Constitution should have been the basis for his decision. He got that principle from a letter by Thomas Jefferson, who, by the way, was not even in America when the Constitution was written. He was our ambassador to France at that time. And he was more taken up with the French Revolution and their separation of church and state. So that's why he brings it in. And 
Hugo Black being a member of the Masonic Lodge and a very anti-Catholic member of the Lodge and of the Ku Klux Klan. He introduces that principle and later in 62, prayer is removed, the Ten Commandments are removed, and within just a few years, they put metal detectors at the schools because they could not teach thou shalt not kill, so that it put metal detectors near the doors to catch the knives and guns students were bringing to school. This is, this is a fact. And we've seen lots of violence. We see our culture institutionalized rejection of God, rejection of Jesus Christ. Famously, the Christmas parade in Denver some years ago would not allow a float that had a nativity scene on it. They said that seeing the nativity of Jesus on a float took away from the spirit of Christmas. What does that tell you about the spirit they have? It's not the spirit of Jesus. It's the spirit of money and of their own acquisitiveness. So think about the other ways in which uh, coaches lose their jobs for praying, even by themselves. One coach in Texas just knelt down and said a prayer silently to himself, lost his job. Removing God away from society is typical for us. And then they do these things to make the rest of us afraid to speak up. They don't want us to speak up. And this is something that we have to consider. And think about the, another thing. How many Christians there are who want Jesus to do things for them. You know, help me out. I want healing. I want this and that. And they want Jesus to do things, but they don't want to live for him. They don't want to trust him in faith. And what we have to ask, is the removal of God, the removal of Jesus Christ, the removal of the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, the Supreme Court made into law in 1982. Their decision in 1982 said you cannot even display the Ten Commandments in public places. That that kind of decision of removing God and Christ and his good law, is that helping our society get better? Are we made into better people by more fornication, more adultery, more killing, legalized killing with, with abortion? I have to ask this. Has that made us more gentle, more kind? Is it helping us fall or rise? And something that we need to do is speak to our Lord about our society and how it is rejecting Jesus as thoroughly as Nazareth rejected him. Imagine yourself sitting down and talking to our Lord about our culture and its removal of him, tossing him 
trying to toss him off the cliff? Very important question. Then we have to take a look at our own lives. Examine ourselves. Do we welcome Jesus or do we reject him? Do we want him as part of our lives or not? Would we even do something as simple as make the sign of the cross and say grace before we eat a meal, whether we're at home or in a restaurant? Will we do that? Are we someone who responds to Jesus the way the people of Nazareth did? What are you going to do for me? And if, you, if I don't like the answer, I want to toss you off the cliff of my life. When you do accept Jesus, how does he make you rise in life? How does that improve you? What impact does, it, does believing in him have in your life? Where is the peace that you find from that? And the moral change. If you reject Jesus and exclude him, how does that affect your life? Do you see that there is a moral decline with that? And what I recommend is that you look at your life through that lens that Simeon spoke to the Blessed Mother. Jesus is for our rise and our fall. Which one is he for me? What would Jesus say to me about that? Have I let him in to let me rise in life? Or do I reject him for a fall? Talk to our Lord. What would he say to you about that? Ask him that question. And again, conclude with that prayer, the soul of Christ. Sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Wounds of, within your wounds, hide me. And save me from the wicked foe. Well, we'll stop there. And we will go to start the wedding feast of Cana next. So come, we'll take a break and come back. So please stay with us. start chapter 4 in my book, Jesus Launches His Ministry. And this chapter 4 is about the wedding feast at Cana, which St. John describes in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now, I'd like to just start with reflecting on verses 1 and 2 especially focusing on an aspect of this that's very important, namely that Jesus 
is the bridegroom of the church. So it says in John 2, verses 1 and 2, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, Cana is not far from Nazareth. Uh, there's a town called Cana, uh, just a few miles north of Nazareth, on the road that goes north. Um, but they think that the older ruins might be a little bit more to the west of there. Uh, but it's just a few hours' walk from Nazareth. And St. John immediately works to identify the main characters of this episode. First, he mentions the mother of Jesus. He doesn't name her, just calls her Jesus' mother. And then there are other guests um, that are there, but they're, there's, uh, but they're not named. Jesus is there and his disciples, whom we were, if you read chapter one, you see his disciples have already been named, except for uh, one uh, who's probably John himself and Philip and Peter and Nathaniel. These, these are named. And so it's just a few of his disciples. Not all 12 have been called at this point. And so Jesus' mother, our Lord Jesus himself and his disciples are named. We have no idea who the bride and groom were or some of the other guests. This anonymity for even the bride and groom and their parents or what relationship they might be, we just don't know. Um, that highlights the importance of those main characters, the Blessed Mother, Jesus, and the disciples. Now, one of the things that normally goes on at a wedding is that the bride, in particular, is the center of attention. Now, that's easy to see. that The groom is there, and he's important. But the real center of attention is the bride. And, of course, her parents are very important. But that's not the case here. That's not so here. And that is important. Now, we see on one hand that our Lord Jesus accepted the invitation to the wedding. And he went. And this is very important because it shows how important marriage is to him. He will teach about marriage, especially in the other Gospels, not so much in John, but he will teach about marriage. It's our Lord Jesus that forbids divorce and remarriage, uh, and that way goes against the school of Hillel, uh, one of the rabbis who allowed for divorce. If your wife does so much as burn the carrots, that's basis for uh, a divorce. And so uh, Rabbi Shammai did not uh, allow divorce very easily. Um, 
and neither does our Lord. But it was um, very important for him to support this new life and new families. And it's important to keep in mind, among the priests in Israel, they had a moral obligation to marry because in Judaism, only the sons of priests could become priests. If your father was not a priest, you could not become a priest. But that meant that the fathers had an obligation to have sons, if at all possible. Of course, it's not up to uh, everybody. We don't choose the gender of a child, but this is uh, something that if they could, they should have a son so the priesthood could continue. Also the rabbis. The rabbis were lay people. They weren't priests. They came from a lay movement called the, of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees as a lay movement also required their rabbis to have children, especially to have sons. Again, they, you didn't have to have a father who was a rabbi in order to be a rabbi, but it'd be more likely that he would teach his son to read and write. So they were expected to have children. On the other hand, there was another group called the Essenes. They lived at Qumran, at the, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were written. And they had a core of the community that was celibate. They had auxiliary members of a sort who could have families, but the core was, was uh, celibate. And our Lord is that way too. He remained unmarried. And it, even though he remained unmarried, Unlike the Essenes, he always supported marriage. He thought it was a good state, and he wanted marriage to be protected. And that's why he prohibited divorce, um, uh, even when the law uh, allowed it. For instance, take a look at Matthew 5, 31 to 32, where Jesus says, uh, Jesus teaches, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's a quote, by the way, from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 and 2. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So there might be a case for divorce, but there's no case for remarriage. And this is something that is very important. Um, and then we also see that he supported marriage as a lifelong commitment, and he bases it on God's law. In Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 7, he also deals with the question of divorce and says, uh, why did Moses con command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her, that divorce a woman? He said to them, it was so because you're so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. So there may be grounds for a divorce, but not for remarriage. Okay, that's, that's what's going on there. 
And by being present at the wedding feast of Cana, he is taking a positive step and showing that his presence is there to bless not only that one couple, but all couples. This is a very important thing. And in that context, even though our Lord does not marry a woman, we, also, we should also be careful not to think of, think of him as a single man. Instead, our Lord identifies himself as the bridegroom. This is in Matt, Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, when he said to the disciples, the wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. He, being the bridegroom, while he's there, they didn't fast. When he's ascended into heaven, then they will fast. Okay? He also describes heaven as a wedding feast in Matthew 22, verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. And Christ, the son of the father, is the one for whom that wedding banquet is set. So he sees heaven as a wedding feast and himself as the groom. Also in John chapter 3, verses 29 to 30, St. John the Baptist says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my voice has been fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. John sees himself as the friend, but Jesus is the bridegroom. And then we have to ask, wait a minute, Christ keeps describing himself and others describe him as a bridegroom. Who is the bride? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel was the bride. You see that in Hosea chapters 1 to 3, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, Ezekiel 16, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62. Many times, Israel is described as the bride, and the Lord God is the bridegroom. But we see St. Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to Christ to present you as a pure bride to her one husband. The church is the bride of Christ. And in Ephesians 5, verse 31 to 32, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is a profound one. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christ is the bridegroom, the church is his bride. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 to 9, he writes, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
And the angel says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Heaven will again be a wedding feast, but the church is the bride, Jesus is the bridegroom. Same in Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 to 4. And that the church is the bride. This is very important because marriage is pointing towards Jesus' love for his church. And you married people in a very special way are to be a sign of God uh, being able to, uh, you know, love each other as a sign of the love of Christ for his church. Your ongoing fidelity to each other is a sign of Christ's fidelity. And for us priests, we who are ordained to act in the person of Jesus Christ, we have to love the church, not as an employer. No, the church is our bride. If we are to act in the person of Christ, then we have to love the church like a groom loves his bride. And this is something that we should then meditate on. If I, what I would recommend is that ask yourself how you think of the church. Do you look upon it as just a bureaucracy, an organization, or do you look at the church the way Christ the bridegroom looks at his bride? Do you see the church with the eyes of Christ as his bride, or do you see it simply as an organization of humans? And then, you know, something else that you might want to do, when you go to a wedding feast, you always say, hear people say, oh, the bride is so pretty, and she's so, oh, what a beautiful dress. You get these comments. But we want to look at the church the way Christ looks at it, not our valuation. And are we like the guests who evaluate the bride from a distance, or do we realize we are members of the bride? We are, we helped form the church, which is the bride of Christ. And imagine Christ looking upon you, whether you're man or woman, but to look upon you with that love of Christ and the love of a groom for his bride. And to think about when, if you are married, how does that affect the way you see your marriage, the dignity of marriage? I heard one fool of a young man saying in an airport, I overheard this, said, well, I'm going to move to Las Vegas. I'll get a starter house and a starter wife. Your wife isn't a starter. You're to love her your whole life and give yourself for her. We need to see that Christ gives the vocation of marriage to, for its own sake and to be a sign of his life, uh, his love of his, his bride, the church. And that he gives marriage so you have children that are members of this church. And to see the mystery of matrimony as a sacrament, which, by the way, is a Latin word, sacramentum, 
meaning mystery. And that I recommend that you go to Psalm 45, which is a wedding psalm for the king of Israel, and pray that, understanding Christ as the bridegroom, the church as his bride, and to see that love that he has for her and all that he will do to protect her. All right. Well, let's stop there and we, uh, let's go, go to some questions. We have a caller already. Hello, Carol? Yes, Father, how are you? Fine, where are you calling from? Uh, Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania, about 50 miles south of Pittsburgh, Diocese of Green. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. Yeah, I've, I've been down that way. There's a Maronite church down about that way. Yes, uh-huh. So what can we do for you today? Well, I'm glad you talked about love today because we were pondering a question, both Catholic and non-Catholic friends of mine. Mm-hmm. If God is so loving, how could he choose such a horrific punishment for his own son to endure? He, being God, could have chosen anything. Yeah. So well, we just wanted to know why God would have chosen that. Couldn't he have given him something else to endure for us. All right, now stick with me here a second. Um, do you have any children? Yes, I have five and I have 14 grandchildren. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Do Have any of your children been in the military? Uh, not yet. Okay. No. no. Okay. okay. You know, a lot of parents uh-huh. encourage their children, especially during times of war, to join the military, right? Right, right, right. Does that mean they want them to get shot? No, I'm sure They not. want them to get blown up by a bomb. No. No. But they also know that that's the risk of defending their country. Uh-huh. Think about how many Ukrainian mothers and wives and daughters have seen their husbands and fathers and sons go to fight to protect their country. They don't want them to get hurt. That, that You can see the agony and the pain. Right. But they know they have to go to protect their country. Right. And in this case, is it the parents whose fault it is that their children get shot? No. No. It would be, this would be the responsibility of the enemy. Right. And what we have to understand is that God the Father really wanted the salvation of a sinful world. And unlike many of the Greek and Roman myths, where the gods never allow themselves to be harmed, they will look like humans. They will take human shape, but they never allow themselves to be harmed. They'll harm other people, but they don't really make themselves vulnerable to people. They always show themselves to be above all that. Whereas when the true God, God the Son, becomes man, he really engages sin. And it was sinners who did this. This isn't something that God the Father said, oh, I'll engineer to make sure they do something bad. These were the choices made as people lied about Jesus, mocked Jesus, 
took pleasure in giving him pain. Remember how the soldiers were mocking him as they put the crown of thorns. And what it shows, very much the way we see in some of this Russian invasion of Ukraine, that many of the soldiers from the Russian army are withdrawing from it. They, they know that this is evil. But some of them take pleasure and just murder citizens. Now, they have the responsibility for that. And the soldiers who mocked Jesus and beat after putting the crown of thorns, beat him over the head with a reed. And then the people who mocked him as he hung on the cross. They have to bear the responsibility, but so do we. Because it's for all of us sinners. And that God really did engage the full brutality of human sin in order to redeem us from sin. And it wasn't some play-acting game the way the Greek gods would do, but it was making himself vulnerable to sin in order to redeem sin. And it's only by letting sin break forth fully against him was he able to redeem us from sin. And I think that would be the perspective. Does that make more sense? That helps a lot. Yeah, we we pondered that back and forth, and sure. they kept yeah we they kept saying if if he was so merciful, couldn't he have chosen something less painful for his own son to endure? And that's but what but that. it's just the reality of making himself totally vulnerable to sinners in order to redeem the sinners. That's kind of the thought that we had, but we weren't sure. So we thought yeah. you were the best person to answer the question. Well, thank you. I'm glad to have been able to help out and confirm what I think by your own instinct of faith, you really did understand well, but just glad to confirm what you already know. Well, we were glad to hear it from you. And I'm so thankful that we got through and we certainly all enjoy your program. Thank you. God bless you and have a blessed Easter season. Bye-bye. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back in just a couple of minutes, so please stay with us. Thank you for coming back. And just want to include a little encouragement to see the show tomorrow night. Join me at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. I will be speaking with Dr. Richard Maloche about the Alquin Institute for Catholic Culture. It's a work in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to cultivate a Catholic Renaissance in education and culture through learning from primary texts, reading the great books, and fostering genuine Catholic life and friendships. Um, 
this is extremely important. Pay attention to this issue. We are seeing how many foolish things are being taught. False history. This uh, book, uh, People's History of America, is filled with deception and false information, outright lies at times, mostly uh, changing facts here and there, and all sorts of other areas of bad uh, instruction being given to young people. We will be talking about what you can do positively to help improve education. So stay tuned for tomorrow. I keep hearing people say this is a time for the parents to are rising up against the institutions. That's a good thing. They love their children. Too many teachers love the ideas, not the kids. All right, let's go to another email. This is from Allison. Dear Father Mitch, I suffered intensely for 23 years with bipolar disorder before I became a Christian. I grew up with a mother who was an atheist and kept God out of our home. After years of expensive treatment and hospitalizations, my illness was brought under control with medication. Well, praise God for that. When this happened, I was so overcome with gratitude, I turned to God and had a major conversion experience. I'm an Episcopalian, not Catholic, but I find the Catholic view uh, very appealing. My question is, can I unite this suffering in my past to Christ, even though I wasn't walking with Him when I was going through this? It's a lot of suffering. I would hate for it to go to waste. Is there any need to un unite my suffering with Christ now that it's over? Um, can it help Christ in some way, Allison? Allison, uh, A, I'm so, so happy to hear about the relief that you find from that suffering of bipolar. And that's very, very important. And secondly, that it's brought you to God. You know, it's interesting that you clearly understand, yes, there was medicine and science was there, but God wasn't excluded just because there was a scientific aid. But you see that in a proper light of God's help as well. Uh, they're not incompatible. Um, now, as far as uniting your suffering, absolutely. Keep this in mind. We unite it with Christ on the cross. Why? We believe that Jesus Christ is God made flesh. And this uniting with Christ, who's God made flesh, is something that is possible because in his divine nature, his crucifixion is not past, but is always and is eternally present. That's why we can come in faith now and say, Jesus, by your death and, uh, and resurrection, forgive my sins and bring me salvation. It's still powerful in this moment because he's God. But by the same token, your past suffering is not in the past for God. 
it's still present. And what you can do, think of it this way. Now that you have faith and you see your suffering in a different light, it's as if you were blind, just like the old hymns, I once was blind, but now I see that you can see and say, Lord, I didn't realize that what a gift I could make my suffering. And so even though it's in my past, I give it to you. This is all I've got. What I've gone through to come to this point, what I've endured, I give that to you. And in that way, you know, we're still like little children that make a little drawing and we say, Mommy, I made this for you. Or Daddy, I drew a picture of you. It's not going to hang in the Louvre, but it will be on the refrigerator door. Well, your suffering will be on God's refrigerator door, by analogy, of course. He doesn't need a refrigerator. <laughs> Everything is fresh. But this is something that it's still your gift, and that's a great thing, okay? All right, God bless you. Um, we have another caller. Hello, is this Brother Gabriel? Is he there? Nope, he's not there. Okay, I thought that we thought we had a caller, but we lost him. All right, well, let's try an email instead, okay? Um, this is an email from Sandra. She says, I am very surprised that all four Gospels do not mention the ascension, that Jesus describes Jesus being carried up to heaven, and Mark says that he was received into heaven, yet Matthew and John do not mention anything about Jesus returning to heaven. Since the ascension is such a miraculous event, I don't understand why it is not included in all four Gospels. Sandra. Sandra, something that I think would be very important. First of all, I would urge you to read again John chapter 16. In John 16, he speaks about a theology of the resurrection, oh, excuse me, a theology of the ascension. Unless I return to my Father, I cannot send you the Holy Spirit. And there are a couple other elements of that. In fact, in my book, Wheat and Tares, I go through that theology of the ascension that is in John's Gospel. And it's just the way he did with the Eucharist. He didn't describe the um, Last Supper, but he gave us a theology of the Eucharist in John 6. So also he doesn't describe the ascension, but gives us a theology of it in John 16. Um, and St. Matthew is emphasizing in the last words, behold, I'm with you to the end of uh, the age, that that sense of Christ's ongoing presence was more important for him than was the uh, description of the ascension. So it's about their faith and their theology, okay? All right, now we have Brother Gabriel. Brother Gabriel, where are you calling from? Well, I'm a um, member of Holy Cross Melkite Church in Placentia, California. Bless oh, Park, God bless Kabuna. you. Ah, Messiah come. I've been come. out in your green room here. <laughs> 
I have a question about uh, Holy Thursday night, where uh, Scripture refers to the disciple that was known to the high priest. Yes. So, um, my question, you know, how was the disciple known to the high priest? Because the only Scripture reference I know of is Judas being known to the high priest mm -hmm. because of the betrayal. <coughs> but we all say that this uh, disciple is John. Right. And I thought you could enlighten me um, as to what's the connection between this, the We don't the know priest. the direct connection, but that somehow John is, you know, as the author the, and, and the witness. Remember, this is part of him being a witness all the way through to the crucifixion that he was known to the high priest and that's how he got into the court. And it's also his explanation of how Peter got into the court. It was through knowing him who knew the high priest. How he did it exactly, we don't know. That, that's just, John doesn't explain that. He just makes that statement about himself. Okay? So that's as much as we can say. I just want to pray again using this icon of Our Lady of Fatima from the Ukrainian Greek Catholics. It says, O Blessed Mother, you stood beneath the cross of your son on Calvary, and the prophecy of Simeon concerning the sword that would pierce your soul was fulfilled. At Fatima, you ask for a spirit of sacrifice of us to bear our daily crosses and offer them for the salvation of sinners throughout the world. We pray for the conversion of Mr. Putin and all the Russian people to end this war and for the people of Ukraine. Lord bless you.